So good evening, uh, friends, colleagues. It's a great uh, privilege to, to introduce David Lubin to give the first of this, uh, this year's Terra Lectures. Um, all, as we know, all traditions are invented. Um, so in line with the invention of tradition, the Terra Lectures are an invented tradition and a new one, um, but were one that we're very happy to welcome to Oxford and to the History of Art Department. Perhaps I should just say a little bit about the context of this. Um, the Terra Foundation uh, for American Art, uh, based in Chicago, um, has very generously uh, funded uh, a visiting professorship in American art for the current year and next year, and we hope this will be an ongoing project. Um, the principal uh, aim of uh, the Terra Visiting Professorship is to embed within the History of Art Department the teaching of American art um, at both undergraduate and taught um, postgraduate level. And David Lubin, who is the distinguished holder of this uh, uh, position uh, for the first time, uh, is uh, busily teaching away at master's students and this term history of art undergraduate students. But it seemed a terrible shame to have such a distinguished historian of American art here among us in Oxford um, and not give uh, a wider community uh, a chance to hear from him. So David was very generous um, in saying yes to the suggestion that he should uh, speak to us. Um, uh, and so we have set up this small series of four lectures uh, in which he will be talking to us um, on the theme of picturing uh, a nation. Um, David comes to us from Wake Forest uh, University in North Carolina, but even more importantly, he comes to us as really one of the most significant living historians um, of American art, who's ranged very broadly across that field, so we're delighted to have him um, inaugurating this. Um, some of you may have been at his lecture in the Rothermere American Institute. Um, his most recent book deals with American artists uh, and the First World War, particularly timely, uh, given that uh, this year marks the 100th anniversary of the United States entry into the First World War. Um, and it's a theme related to war that he's going to talk to us uh, about tonight. Um, to kick off the first of these four lectures, Riding into History, Marching into Oblivion, the Civil War, Racial Justice, and the Shaw Memorial. So please welcome to the podium, Professor David Lubin. Oh, uh, thank you everybody for turning out on this rotten afternoon. Try to, um, well, at least for me, it's not what I thought of as May, but uh, that May should be in Britain, but anyway. All right. So yes. So this time, and is the light okay on the screen? It's fine. Good. Thank you. In the first, um, in the first several decades following the Civil War, whoops, my glasses are falling. I'm sorry. Let me start that over with a pair of glasses. I hope we'll stay on. In the first several decades following the Civil War, the Irish-born American sculptor. Augustus St. Gaudens, shown here early and late in his career, spoke to his contemporaries with large public works that engaged their minds and moved their spirits. Not all the pieces he sculpted were actually memorials, but many of the best were, as here, for example, the famous monument to Colonel Robert Gould Shaw, a young white abolitionist from Boston, and the all-black Civil War regiment he commanded. 
Since antiquity, the medium of sculpture has been an ideal mode for memorializing the dead because the substances involved are relatively stable and permanent, intended to withstand the diminishments of time. St. Gaudens was 19th century America's greatest sculptor of memory. He molded and shaped the past for Americans in ways that many that may or may not have been historically accurate, but which were always visually compelling and emotionally resonant. My lecture this afternoon will explore some of the most important of these monuments and memorials and try to understand how they affected Northerners' collective memory of the recent national cataclysm. St. Gaudens didn't start off his career with Civil War representation. First, he made his name with intimate sculptural portraits. This was a bold move. For centuries, oil painting, not sculpture, had been the medium par excellence for conveying the personality of sitters. Yet even though St. Gaudens toiled instead with notoriously stiff and obdurate materials such as marble and bronze, he often managed, as well as any painter, to endow his sitters with nuances of life. Here, for example, is a small bronze portrait only seven inches high of his friend Charles McKim, the noted American Renaissance architect. And here, considerably larger, at two, by, two feet by three, is a double portrait of the novelist William Dean Howells and his daughter Mildred. St. Gaudens' delicate three-quarter length portrait of Sarah Redwood Lee, the daughter of a friend, balances elements of forthrightness and reticence, perhaps like the 16-year-old subject herself, whom he shows poised between girlhood and womanhood. Looking back from the end of his life, he singled this out as one of the best portraits he ever made. This extraordinary bas-relief is from his portrait of Mariana Griswold van Rensselaer. She was an influential art critic of the time who championed his work. And this is from his wedding portrait of Bessie Smith White, the bride of his friend and colleague Stanford White, another eminent American Renaissance architect and a partner with Charles McKim in the firm of McKim, Mead and White. One of the best of the artist's early sculptural reliefs is Louise Miller Howland. The panel, which is about three feet high, shows an attractive middle-aged woman standing beside a piano, on top of which sheet music has been gathered in an untidy pile. She entwines her hands loosely before her and seems to focus her attention elsewhere. This is the parlor world described by St. Gaudens's contemporary Thomas Aikens in paintings such as Elizabeth at the Piano or here singing a pathetic song. But no music is being performed. It has been set aside as the subject turns her head toward another realm. Louise Miller Howland was deceased when her widowed husband commissioned St. Gaudens to sculpt this work, and it poignantly conveys a sense of life interrupted. Another intimate portrait relief that St. Gaudens modeled, this time later, uh, this time later in mid-career, was not originally intended as a memorial. In 1887, he met and sculpted the ailing Scottish poet and storyteller Robert Louis Stevenson during the author's stopover visit in New York on his way to the South Pacific, where he hoped to recover from chronic lung disease. 
The resulting bronze medallion shows the slender, long-haired Scotsman writing in bed, propped up by pillows, with the pages of a manuscript balanced on his tented knees. It's probably the most charming sculpture ever made of a writer at work, fun, intimate, behind the scenes. And yet it's also sweet and touching, a snapshot or cameo of a bedridden author who manages, nevertheless, to transform his enforced indolence into imaginative play. The image St. Gaudens rendered of Stevenson was irresistible and quickly became well-known and often reproduced, ultimately defining the way that future generations of Stevenson's readers pictured him, or in keeping with my theme, remembered him in their mind's eye. A decade after the storyteller's death in Samoa in 1894, a committee in his hometown of Edinburgh commissioned St. Gaudens to convert the medallion into a, into a memorial plaque for St. Giles Cathedral. Thus, what had begun as a private portrait became a public monument. Likewise, Stephen, uh, St. Gaudens' statue for the grave of Henry Adams, recently deceased wife, Marion, a work of intense feeling and profound inscrutability, eventually became, despite the widower's wishes, a tourist attraction in Washington, where it was installed in 1891 in a quiet cemetery grove. Adams, a distinguished historian and the direct descendant of two US presidents, was a deeply self-questioning individual who rejected the reigning pieties of his time, be they religious, social, or political. He was drawn to Buddhist and Hindu teachings about nirvana or nothingness, and he wanted his wife's grave and eventually his own, to be marked by a reminder of life's unfathomable mysteries and ambiguities. St. Gaudens obliged him brilliantly. As a consequence, turn-of-the-century visitors to the Adams Memorial mused on the nature and meaning of the shrouded figure, debated its sex, and wondered what dark secrets of the future it foretold. The first memorial that St. Gaudens specifically intended for public consumption the Farragut Memorial was unveiled in New York's Madison Square 10 years earlier, in 1881. The Farragut Monument was in certain ways the exact opposite of the Adams Memorial. For here, the, sculpt the sculptural figure on display engendered in viewers not a mood of doubt and perplexity, but of supreme confidence. The recently deceased commander of the Union Navy, Admiral David G. Farragut, was legendary during the Civil War for his bravery under fire, as envisioned here in this color lithograph depicting the Battle of Mobile Bay. That's him leaning from the rigging. In the economic boom and bust years that followed the war, Farragut's rallying cry to his fleet at Mobile, Mobile Bay, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead, entered the lexicon as the phrase that best embodied the intrepid, go-ahead spirit that Gilded Age Americans believed would see them through to greater and greater triumphs. Um, by encapsulating this spirit in a powerful and heroic visual image, St. Gaudens' monument, which instantly became famous and gave the sculptor widespread fame, provided Americans, at least those from the victorious North, with a flattering image of themselves and their recent collective past. 
Farragut specifically alludes to Donatello's early Renaissance sculptural masterpiece of another legendary warrior, St. George. The admiral, shown here in a plaster reduction, stands resolute as if on the bridge of a naval vessel. His face defiantly into the wind, he faces defiantly into the wind, which St. Gaudens deftly indicates by the parting of the coat at his knees. This serves at once as a realistic detail and a subtle reference to ancient Greek sculpture, which reveled in the rendition of apparel blown back or thrown open by the wind, as in the Louvre's great historic Hellenistic masterpiece, the Nike of Samothrace from the second century BC. St. Gaudens had much admired this work during his student days in Paris. Nike, the goddess of victory, is shown at the moment she has descended from the heavens to the prow of a ship. Thus she too, like the old admiral, is shipborne and windblown. Wrote one admirer, quote, the admiral stands perfectly still. His hands are not raised in gesture. His mouth is not open, but he is so much a man that he holds one's attention instantly. And he is so quiet that he seems to move. The artist succeeded in making him almost quiver with pulsating life. St. Gaudens's standing Lincoln, unveiled in Chicago in 1887 and on a base designed by Stanford White, won even greater acclaim. The Lilliputian figure you see standing beside the empty chair is the sculptor himself. With this monument, he provided his contemporaries a remarkable visual image by which to remember, or if you will, misremember, their recent past. Indeed, this is the statue most responsible for creating the iconic image of Lincoln that we have today, as rendered in film, fiction, and $5 bill. The tall, lanky, craggy-faced orator, shambling forward to speak, his brow ponderous with thought, his clothes wrinkled as if only from, as if not only from normal wear, but also the weight of responsibility bearing down on his shoulders. Up until St. Gaudens entered the field, Lincoln monuments typically showed him as the great emancipator with freed Negro slaves groveling at his feet. They served up a Lincoln that to our eyes seems outlandishly faux and sentimental, perhaps even insufferable. With their declamatory gestures and pious expressions, they lack the gravitas and leonine presence of St. Gaudens later rendition. Given what they were used to, viewers were dumbstruck by what they took to be the extraordinary realism of the standing Lincoln. How did St. Gaudens achieve that effect, they wondered. At least in part, he did so through concerted research. Like a method actor preparing a role, although in this case, a role to be played by his statue, the sculptor immersed himself in Lincoln's letters and speeches, read all the current biographies of the man and the memoirs by those who knew him intimately, pored over the many daguerreotypes for which the president had posed, and even went so far as to examine 1860 life casts of Lincoln's face and hands that had recently come to light. St. Gaudens exploits an array of small external details and gestures to convey the rich inner life of the man. For example, the wrinkling of his vest echoes the wrinkling of his brow. 
His head is downturned, as if in thought. In this regard, he resembles the figure that Thomas Aikens portrayed 13 years later in 1900 for a portrait known as The Thinker. Aikens similarly depicts a tall, lanky, solitary individual rumpled in clothing and plunged in thought. The watch chain, the watch chain hanging across Lincoln's torso serves as a memento mori, an iconographic reminder of the chains of time and hence the premature mortality that tragically awaited the president from the moment he took his, first fa his fatal first step forward into the office that would eventually consume his life. His left hand clutches at his lapel, a gesture St. Gaudens learned that was common for Lincoln when making speeches. The right hand, balled in a fist, disappears behind his back. This retraction of the hand behind the back was unheard of in public sculpture, and it lent the piece a startling air of mystery, tension, and suppressed power. Perhaps the most extraordinary element was the vacant seat behind the orator. This was a novel idea for public sculpture, a standing figure beside an empty seat. It bespeaks absence. Someone was sitting there and is doing so no longer. He has moved on. This is similar to the metaphor underlying Louise Miller Howland, the relief portrait we examined earlier, in which the deceased woman who is being memorialized seems to have gotten up from her piano and turned toward another plane of existence. On one level of interpretation, Lincoln has abandoned the safe confines of his chair to advance his carefully chosen and intensely resisted plans for the Union. But on another level, he has begun his transition into immortality, a notion that was conveyed by the War Secretary Edward Stanton's famous remark made at the president's deathbed, now he belongs to the ages. The power of the standing Lincoln for St. Gaudens' contemporaries was that it managed to appear real and authentic, while at the same time transcendent, an embodiment of moral, even spiritual strength, what was lost, however, in this new naturalistic view of Lincoln, Lincoln the man rather than the saint, was his role as emancipator. As we have seen, those earlier highly sentimental sculptural groups were racially condescending. And yet, for all of that, they acknowledged the all-important fact that was systematically erased later in the 19th century which is that the Civil War was waged first and foremost over slavery. By 1887, after the collapse of Reconstruction and the rise of Jim Crow racism throughout the North as well as the South, most Ameri white Americans wanted to minimize the importance of slavery as the cause of the war. Instead, they preferred to see the upheaval as an honorable and heroic clash of political philosophies, which Lincoln gave his life to resolve. By forsaking his predecessor's insistence on showing Lincoln as the great emancipator, St. Gaudens helped to shift the public's memory of the president to that of the great unifier instead, and in so doing, hastened the disappearance of racial justice from the national agenda. In the early 1890s, the sculptor received the commission to create a monument to one of the Civil War's most controversial military leaders, William Tecumseh Sherman, who had just died. 
Sherman, as you know, was the Union general who besieged Atlanta in 1864, and after starving the populace, burnt the city to the ground. Cutting a swath 60 miles wide on their march from Atlanta to the sea, his forces, some 60,000 strong, laid waste not only to public buildings and railways, but also to vast amounts of property. Civilian casualties were high. Homes were torched, fields trampled, women harassed and raped. Here was the first instance in history of what historians now call total war. This was state-sanctioned violence against the civilian population as part of a larger military campaign. Historically, it was an unprecedented act of terrorism. Needless to say, that was not to be the focus of the monument dedicated to his memory. Not long before his death, Sherman, Sherman sat for a portrait bust by St. Gaudens. Although it smooths away the rough edges of the disheveled and beetle-browed general, as memorably recorded in Civil War-era photographs, it conveys, nonetheless, a sense of quiet agitation. St. Gaudens scholar Theotolus writes that the sculptor's contemporaries, quote, marveled at how the portrait's truthful appearance, the parted lips, weathered skin, bristled beard, and a beard in a skew, and a skew cravat, so forcefully captured the nervous power of the sitter. When the Sherman Monument was unveiled in New York in 1903, critics considered it the sculptor's masterpiece an equestrian statue to be ranked on a par with the great Italian Renaissance prototypes, Donatello's Gatta Malata in Padua, which I show here, and Verrocchio's Il Corleone in Venice. Angled forward on his charger, boots piercing the stirrups, military cape swooping back in the wind, determination stamped across his face, St. Gaudens's Sherman epitomizes the Nietzschean will to power that many early 20th century observers regarded as the special genius of America. In 1903, President Theodore Roosevelt famously described his, form, his foreign policy as speaking softly and carrying a big stick. As an equestrian group, the Sherman Monument conveys something of the same idea, with the surging power of the mounted rider prefaced and mollified by the virginal beauty and innocence of the winged victory. Again, St. Gaudens invokes the Nike of Samothrace, this time explicitly. Crowned in laurel and, and clasping a palm branch, the symbol of victory, St. Gaudens' Nike amounts to a public relations advance man or advance woman. Her job is to soften or even disguise the raw, brute power of American military and industrial might, as embodied by the fearsome Yankee general who brought the Confederacy to its knees. Lest this seem like an anachronistic interpretation, I should note that Southerners at the time mocked the Sherman, the Sherman, sorry, mocked the Sherman Monument, saying it was, quote, just like a Northerner to send a woman ahead of him so nobody could shoot. Henry James, writing in 1906, was similarly unimpressed with the monument's counterbalancing of warlike masculinity and idealized femininity. 
He thought that the grim general straining into the breeze, or in his words, the enemy blast, was a brilliant personification of the brutality of war, and that St. Gaudens should have left it at that. What James objected to was the addition of what he called, quote, the form of a beautiful American girl. The artificial pairing of the caped conqueror with a radiant virgin serves, as James put it, puts it, quote, to confound destroyers with benefactors. He believed that a war monument requires greater fidelity to history. He said, I would have Sherman deadly and terrible, a war god crested with snakes, not irradiating benevolence, but signifying by every ingenious device the misery, the ruin, and the vengeance of his track. Victory, James's beautiful American girl, as shown here in a detail from a gilded bronze reduction, was the last in long line of idealized goddesses and angels that St. Gaudens used to embellish his memorials. His angels for the Morgan tomb, which were destroyed by fire in 1884, his caryatids for the Vanderbilt Mansion fireplace, shown here on the left, and his Amora Caritas on the right, were highly influential in the way that late 19th and early 20th century Americans envisioned ideal feminine beauty as something almost androgynous in nature, as in these two paintings by the sculptor's colleague and neighbor, Abbot Thayer. Probably more than any other American artist, St. Gaudens was responsible for inventing the look of the fin de siècle angel that remains familiar today, as witness, for example, Tony Kushner's Angels in America. Whether nude, like Diana, the classical goddess of the hunt affixed as a weather vane to the old Madison Square Garden, or clad in celestial garments and victories, in, in wings like victory, St. Gaudens's idealized females served a strategic purpose for his contemporaries. Their pulchritude, that is, their consummate physical beauty, counterbalanced male hardness and, and hard-heartedness. It infused the manly universes of business, sports, politics, and war with an offsetting and stimulating femininity. Without these angels and goddesses, the public sphere, the public sphere given such compelling visual form by St. Gaudens and his fellow American Renaissance artists and architects might have seemed too nakedly masculine, driven, and blunt. St. Gaudens incorporated an angel into his finest public monument, which marks the summit of his career. This was the memorial erected in Boston to Colonel Robert Gould Shaw and the 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry, the first regiment of black soldiers organized in the North during the Civil War. Shaw died in 1863, along with a great number of his men during a futile charge against Fort Wagner, a Confederate stronghold strategically situated on a small island outside Charleston, South Carolina. The battle is imagined here in this lithograph from the 1890s. Set within a columned granite and marble frame, 
St. Gaudens's large bronze relief rests between two stately elms on Beacon Street. Uh, rest between two stately elms on Beacon Street above Boston Common, bearing laurel and poppy, symbols of victory and death. The angel is stern and gaunt, not an ethereal, sweet-faced, innocent girl, but a mature woman hardened by sorrow. She soars like a ponderous cloud over the heads of the men, whom St. Gaudens depicts solemnly marching off to war. Unlike victory in the Sherman Memorial, who conspicuously keeps her distance from the great warrior at her heels, the angel of the Shaw Memorial presses close to the men beneath her, as if she were an abiding thought emanating from their heads. Indeed, the Shaw Memorial is an altogether different sort of public monument from those we have considered. For one thing, it's a relief sculpture rather than a freestanding sculpture. As such, its mood is reticent. Farragut commands from the quarter deck of his imaginary ship. Lincoln steps into immortality. Sherman launches himself into the winds of war. And Diana holds court over the, imagine, over the Empire City. There's none of that self-projection with the Shaw Memorial. Colonel Shaw seems almost to resist the viewer's attention. He's, quote, lean as a compass needle, to borrow Robert Lowell's arresting phrase, which refers not only to Shaw's physical being, but also his, but also his moral bearing. Lowell's well-known poem from 1960, For the Union Dead, describes the, re the writer on the frieze as having, quote, an angry, wren-like vigilance, a greyhound's gentle tautness. He seems to wince at pleasure and suffocate for privacy. As we saw earlier, bas-relief was the type of sculpture with which St. Gaudens achieved his most personal portraiture. Think back to the Stevenson Memorial, the Stevenson Medallion, or the beautiful portrait of young Sarah Redwood Lee. Even though the Shaw Memorial is a major monument in the heart of a busy city, it's intimate and dis uh, it is intimate and discreet, more along the lines of the private and introspective Adams Memorial. Surely this anomaly serves, stems from the unusual nature of its origin. Like Farragut, Sherman, and Lincoln, Shaw was commissioned by prominent citizens wishing to commemorate a great military leader. But the difference here is that the group that commissioned the Shaw Memorial was comprised of high-minded Bostonians, several of whom had been ardent abolitionists. These men were disheartened by the recent demise of Reconstruction and the resultant amnesia that was causing Americans to misremember the war as a glorious contest between chivalrous heroes rather than the terrible but necessary cataclysm over slavery that it actually was. The commissioners sought a memorial that downplayed military valor and paid tribute instead to the cause for which the young colonel and his colored troops, as they called them, had rendered their lives. Hence, the sorrowful rather than celebratory nature of this monument. In the ongoing battle of symbols and ideas as to how the war would be remembered, it insisted, especially with the angel of death hovering overhead, that failure, tragedy, and loss are inalienable aspects of any victory. A related explanation as to why this monument 
look so different from the others, so much more personal, is that the family of the individual being honored was actively engaged in the creative process. Shaw was a 26-year-old Harvard-educated Boston Brahmin raised by a family long committed to the belief that slavery was wrong and should be abolished at any cost. When the war ended and proud New Englanders called for his martyred body to be disinterred from its mass grave and reburied with honors in the ancestral city of Boston, his parents refused, explaining that their son would have preferred to remain with his men, even in death. Later, when St. Gaudens received the commission from the memorial and planned to make a heroic equestrian statue of it, Shaw's parents intervened again. They objected that their son was not an important military commander, and a statue portraying him as a hero on a horse would be inappropriate. Again, they insisted that he would have wished to remain with his men, and to that, ex and, and to that end, St. Gaudens dropped the idea of a freestanding equestrian statue and began designing a multi-figure monument instead. This necessitated a freeze because under the financially restricted terms of the commission, it would have been impossible to sculpt a whole ensemble of statues in the round. In the design that resulted, shown here in the gilded plaster cast version, now at the National Gallery in Washington, the men and their rifles bunch up behind the mounted colonel like a steel spring compressed in space, ready to uncoil. A sharp, angular linearity defines the scene, but these hard angles are relieved at intervals by the circular bedrolls, canteens, and drum, as well as the curving flanks of the horse and his involuted tail. Other softening elements are the mantle of the angel, which undulates in a, uh, which, sorry, um, which undulates in a sweet, breezy swoop, and the elongated arch that encloses the frieze. Shaw's charger seems more emotional than the colonel or any of his men. The scene is fraught, but all the human agents within it exhibit self-control equivalent to that of the rider over his mount. Indeed, one of the most innovative aspects of the Shaw Memorial was its dignified individualizing of the black troops. St. Gaudens has given each of the 16 or so fully or partially visible faces distinct characteristics, offering the viewer a range of race-appropriate but also age-appropriate facial structures and types. Thus, for example, he suggests that while some of the older soldiers haven't touched a razor in years, some of the younger have yet to use one. The reason it took St. Gaudens 13 years to complete the commission, by far his longest period of gestation, is that he sculpted some 40 portraits studies of African-American heads before arriving at the much smaller cadre of faces he incorporated into the final version. Sad to say, St. Gaudens entertained some of the typically racist attitudes of his time and place. And yet, as the art historian Kirk Savage has persuasively argued, the internal logic of the piece compelled the sculptor to transcend his own limited and bigoted beliefs, for there was no way that he could pay tribute to Colonel Shaw without treating Shaw's men with equivalent seriousness and respect. 
Whatever his intentions may have been, the work that resulted is unique in 19th century American art for the dignity and depth of humanity it accords people of African descent. In this, he was going very much against the tide of racial representation in late 19th century America, where black soldiers were typically depicted as lazy, overgrown children incapable of standing on their own two feet. Indeed, simply by putting his African-Americans on their feet, instead of on their backs, bellies, or knees, he afforded them an unusually high degree of respect. With its multiple rows of military figures lined up four abreast, each row dissolving from high to low relief into the bronze background, the Shaw Memorial provides a plethora of individual faces gathered across the flat, two-dimensional surface of the picture plane and the narrowly raking three-dimensional sculptural space. Separate and unique, but also joined closely together, these faces constitute a single collective face, a united front wedged between an adverse past and a future that is perilous, but also potentially propitious. Unlike the fatalistic black man alone and adrift in shark-infested waters in Winslow Homer's 1899 allegory of racial futility, the Gulf Stream, the black men here face their destiny with firm resolve and collective action. The monument was unveiled on Memorial Day, 1897, exactly 34 years after the event that it commemorates, commemorates, which is not the attack on Fort Wagner, but rather the departure of the regiment from Boston six weeks earlier. The sculptor chose, that is, to emphasize a moment of hope and promise rather than defeat. Nonetheless, sadness pervades the work. All who attended the unveiling would have known that this march to war resulted in the death of the hero and the decimation of his regiment. That regiment long disbanded, the veterans of the 54th reconvened for the unveiling. These were the survivors, first of the bloody assault that claimed their comrades and their leader, but also of the hardships of being poor and black in post-Reconstruction America. They were survivors, too, of old age. The relief depicts them as mostly young, marching south with their leader on Beacon Street, away from the Massachusetts State House, as they had done on a bright May morning in 1863. Now, on a misty gray morning in May, a third of a century later, none of them young anymore, the veterans paraded uphill along the same street. St. Gaudens, shown here at approximately this time, was moved by their presence at the ceremony. Years later, he recalled watching them confront the monument, quote, the impression of those old soldiers passing the very spot where they had left for war so many years before thrills me even as I write these words. They seemed as if returning from the war, the troops of bronze marching in the opposite direction, the direction in which they had left for the front, and the young men there represented, now showing these veterans the vigor and hope of youth. Over the years, the Shaw Memorial elicited strong responses from artists and intellectuals who were captivated by its visual and moral power. 
The speakers of the dedication ceremony were two famed moral leaders, Booker T. Washington, the most honored spokesperson for black America, and the, whoops, oops, that slide was supposed to come earlier. So, um, but here we go. The speaker of the dedication ceremony were two famed moral leaders, Booker T. Washington, the most honored spokesperson for black America, and the Harvard psychologist and philosopher William James. James vehemently opposed the jingoism and saber-rattling that would eventually lead the nation into a brief war with Spain, followed by a prolonged conflict with native insurgents in the US-occupied Philippines. He took the occasion of the dedication ceremony to remind his audience that Colonel Shaw and his men had fought and died for a great principle, the abolishment of slavery, and not for personal gain or glory or nationalist pride. In the years to come, the Shaw Memorial served as a muse to a range of American writers and artists. Charles Ives set it to music in 1911 as the, Saint, the title was The St. Gaudens in Boston Common which he later included in his Three Places in New England. Ralph Ellison was guided by it as an artistic model when he began writing his novel about racial injustice, The Invisible Man, which was published in 1952. And in 1960, Robert Lowell wrote his searing poem about it, For the Union Dead, from which I quoted earlier. Eventually, however, the memorial fell into a sad state of disrepair. In, eight, in 1973, its blighted condition inspired collaboration between the essayist and ballet impresario Lincoln Kirstein and the photographer Richard Benson. Kirstein wrote eloquently of the ongoing relevance of the monument in the post-civil rights era, and Benson's photographs turned its stained and streaked surfaces into hauntingly beautiful images of decay. Once the monument was returned to pristine condition in the early 1980s, and the previously absent names of the fallen foot soldiers were inscribed in its base, the memorial attracted newfound attention. Here we see a visit to it in the early 2000s by members of the famed Boys Choir of Harlem. Shortly after the monument was restored, a film producer caught sight of it one day as he was crossing Boston Common. He commissioned a script to be written, and eventually the movie Glory, inspired by the monument, came out to much acclaim and popular success in 1989. It's easy to be critical of the film as an exercise in white liberal paternalism, since it required the presence of a white movie star, Matthew Broderick, in order to receive financing. Here I show you Broderick on the right, made up to look like Shaw, as seen in a period photograph. Problematically, the narrative of the film implies that black Americans could not attain their goals without the intervention of noble-minded whites, that they were not agents of their own destiny. That said, the filmmaker's goal was to make the foot soldiers, not Shaw, the collective hero of the tale. As film historian Bruce Chadwick has noted, Shaw was, quote, the character with the most lines, but was not the focus of the story. Clearly, 
The actors, costume designers, and makeup artists scrupulously studied St. Gaudens' vision of Shaw and the enlisted men of the 54th when creating the lead characters in the drama. I was tempted to show you some clips from the film, but uh, I'll show you something else. Um, so here we see Morgan Freeman in one leading role, and Denzel Washington in another, for which he won his first Academy Award. Glory succeeded in its goal of rescuing the anonymous black soldiers of the 54th Massachusetts from oblivion. They were not anonymous, of course. We have and have always had historical documentation, names, ranks, and home addresses of those who served in the regiment. But like foot soldiers in any army at any time, the men were little more to us than names, ranks, and addresses. Here is where creative art, unlike social or military history, provides a distinct service. It fabricates characters, it invents them, or cobbles them together from bits and pieces of real life people or from other fictional characters. In so doing, it allows us to imagine the inner life of individuals who actually did exist, but left little or no firsthand record of their experiences. The soldiers in bronze, like those in the movie, are emotionally compelling composites, fictionalizations that nonetheless strike us as real. Glory is the only instance I can think of in which a major Hollywood film was based on a work of sculpture. To be sure, it was based as well on, historic, on historical characters and events, including Shaw's letters to his family. Nonetheless, the closing credits of the film roll over a tight framing on the frieze of the Shaw Memorial uh, in prominent, if tacit, acknowledgement of St. Gaudens. So here we will try to run out. This is the boys' choir of Harlem that's singing. I think of St. Gaudens as one of the most important 19th century progenitors of American cinema. His work anticipates Hollywood aesthetics. He was a master of the close-up before that term was invented. He can also be thought of as having pioneered the low angle establishing shot so familiar from the classic westerns of John Ford and others, as here in this monument to the Civil War General John Logan 
as a lone rider on a hill. A figure similar to St. Gaudens in that regard is the late 19th and early 20th century book illustrator Howard Pyle, the subject of my terror lecture in this auditorium a week from today. As I hope to have shown, St. Gaudens was remarkably, a remarkably sensitive and acute portraitist in bronze. He was an extraordinary technician with an ability to compose on both an epic and an intimate scale. He memorialized the rich and famous, but also, as with the ancillary figures of the Shaw Memorial, the underprivileged and unknown. He was a giant of Gilded Age America, one of the most enduring artists of the American Renaissance. Through the nuance and stylistic versatility of his sculptural oeuvre over a series of decades, he shaped the way the generations of Americans and visitors to America encountered its history. He pictured the nation in ways that we are still wrestling with today. Then again, perhaps Americans are not sufficiently sufficiently wrestling with these matters. We can argue about the ultimate ideological meaning of the Shaw Memorial in terms of its racial politics. Is it a work of paternalistic white liberalism in which a privileged Caucasian rides literally above and figuratively on the shoulders and backs of African Americans? Or to the contrary, does it constitute an eloquent and powerful call for racial dignity and respect at a moment in U.S. history when Jim Crow racism, characterized by systemic violence against African Americans, seems once again to be on the rise. However we might wish to answer the question of the sculpture's racial implications, it seems indisputable to me that the Shaw Memorial, more than any other public monument in America, asks citizens to take race seriously. We turn our backs on it at our own peril. Thank you very much.